Andrew has presented a very uh, serious, a very solemn challenge in the songs that we've been singing this morning, talking about uh, the one on whom we stand, the one in whom we place our trust. These are, are beautiful hymns, beautiful songs that have been written uh, for the people of God, for uh, the body of Christ, in order that we might express the things which are upon our hearts as we seek, seek to live out each and every day of our lives. We all, at least we state by, um, by mouth, that we want to be followers of Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian. I read a statistic the other day that said 47% of those who claim to be Christian read the Bible, believe the Bible is true. Only 47%. Well, you know, these uh, statistics like that uh, bear out the fact that what people say uh, often is an indication of their lack of understanding of what they're talking about. It's often a, uh, an indication of their uh, their seriousness about their statements. You know, there are, uh, our world is made up of, of followers of all kinds. Why do people follow? What is the reason that someone goes after something or something else? It's because they expect something in return. It's because they're willing to invest something in order to get something back. And... Uh, uh, most of the time you, when you hear someone talk about that, what it is they want, they're talking about money, they're talking about pleasures, they're talking about material wealth of all different kinds. It's not very often you hear them talk about spiritual things. Not very often that you hear them talk about heaven. It's, a, it's amazing that while 47, only 47% of, uh, claim to believe the Bible is true, that uh, many of them believe they're going to heaven, most of them. But you know, Jesus made a statement that uh, in this passage we're going to be looking at, in which he talks about desire. If you desire, he says. Now, what we need to be doing continually is examining our desire. Where is it that our desires lay? All right. For many people, you know, as long as they believe that what they desire is going to give them a return on what they invest, then they're willing to, to go with it. They're willing to follow and some make some rather foolish decisions, foolish choices. As we know, of course, one of the most infamous is uh, that of the, uh, the, the Jim Jones uh, tragedy in Guyana. Those that uh, uh, lost their lives because they followed a man who, uh, who held him captive with a lie. But today, I want us to talk a little bit about one who offers, who gives us an invitation. He gives us, uh, well, there are three things, really, that he uh, does. One is that he uh, gives us a pattern for living. He gives us, uh, then he presents us with a question and uh, an offer, and then says, this is what's going to happen if you fail. All right. In this. So, uh, you know, growing up, Jesus uh, lived in a small town, a little hamlet, 
uh, called Nazareth up in Galilee. And uh, his father, earthly father, was a carpenter. When uh, uh, And, of course, during that time, Rome was in control. It was at the height of its power. And its tentacles spread throughout the known world at that time. And, uh, of course, that meant that Palestine, Israel, was under the Roman hand. And there was great resentment on the part of the people of God, the Jews, during that time. And But they recall what they hung on to, what was their great hope, what was their great desire was to see the return of the Messiah. To see the Messiah come and to reassert uh, Israel's place in uh, God's world that he had created. That, they, uh, that the kingdom uh, of God be uh, manifest in this world in which we live. And so they looked with great anticipation for the coming Messiah. As the centuries passed, these, this uh, uh, anticipation and this desire, this fervor for the return of the Messiah began to wane a little bit because they felt like they had waited for so long and waited and waited. And uh, they had gone into captivity. They had returned from captivity. And uh, things were never as they were before. Uh, Israel had lost its former glory. Well, and then one day, a man burst upon the scene by the name of John. And he began to preach with such fervor about the one that was coming and he was preparing the way for. Messiah was coming. And he drew great crowds as people turned out uh, by the hundreds, by the thousands. It said multitudes of people from all the surrounding countryside all over the land came to hear John preach and to be baptized in this baptism of repentance. And then there at the Jordan, while John was preaching, among that multitude walked a man and John looked at him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus walked to John into the water. Jesus was baptized and the Holy Spirit came down. And the Heavenly Father spoke to him and said, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And immediately, Jesus was driven from that place out into the wilderness. Where for 40 days... He was there in that desolate place with no food, no water that we know of. And he was, uh, by any human standard, 40 days in a situation like that would have uh, driven an ordinary person crazy if they could have even made it. At the end, after 40 days had passed, Jesus had an encounter with Satan. And here... When Jesus or an ordinary human being would have been at their most vulnerable, Satan tempted him with food, tempted him to turn these stones into bread. He tempted Jesus to prove that he was indeed, okay? You prove that you're the son of God. And Jesus denied that. He denied the the opportunity. And then Satan took Jesus up on a high mountain And showed him the kingdoms of the world. And he said, look, if you will bow down and worship me, all of this will be yours. Well, Jesus had a calling from his heavenly father. 
He knew why he had come. He came to bring people into the kingdom of God. An ordinary human being might have said, boy, what better way to do this than to have a rule over all the kingdoms of the earth? And then everyone would obey me. But Jesus denied that opportunity, that temptation. And so Jesus left that place. The angels ministered to him. Now that was a significant moment for him. But it's a significant uh, description for you and me about our Savior and what it is that he came to do. Jesus walked the dusty roads of Palestine for two and a half years. <coughs> and as he did, he did marvelous things, wonderful things, miracles, and, and taught as no one had ever heard anyone teach before. And then one day, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And it was that point that they revealed who people said he was. And then Peter said, you're Christ, the son of God. (coughs) And so the Lord Jesus affirmed that. And he and he told Peter, he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. And then the next thing we find right before we get to this passage that we're going to look at today is Jesus says that I am going to be arrested and crucified and buried. The disciples, this, they couldn't understand this. Well, how could this be? You're a Messiah. Two and a half years. <coughs> years. They had been with Jesus, these disciples. And still, they were unable to grasp all that Jesus was trying to teach them. But they were coming along. They knew that Jesus was different. They knew that he was someone special. They knew he was Messiah. But what is this he's talking about death? That doesn't fit in to our expectations. Well, he had just told them that he must die for their sins on the cross, and which shattered every notion and every dream that they had about the Messiah that was coming, concerning the Messiah. And as soon as that information is given out, then Jesus calls all the people that are, we've been listening to him together along with his disciples, uh, to come around him. And he says, I have something to say to you. He begins to speak. And as he does, he tells this crowd that is gathered there that there is a high price attached to his being a follower. So with your Bibles open, I want you, uh, please, let's stand together. And we're going to read this passage from Mark chapter 8. Verses 34 through 38. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 38. Stand, if you will, in respect of the, and reverence to the reading of the word. And when he had called the people to him and with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. 
Or, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Father, as we examine this passage, as we seek to understand the life and the words which our Lord Jesus has spoken here to his disciples, Father, open our hearts and our minds and grant us understanding. Help us to understand, Father, this thing about the cost of being a disciple. Help us to understand, Father, what it is, what it means for us to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. So bless us as we open your word, Father, in in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know, many people believe that they can have Jesus and have the world as well. You know, they, many people, uh, they claim to be followers of Christ while they live their lives as they please. Jesus lets us know in this passage here, in no uncertain terms, that notions such as this are utterly false. If a person is going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, there is a very, very high price to pay. Here, Jesus makes it clear that there simply are no shortcuts. There are no... Uh, uh, detours or any other way to get to Christ than by this way. If you're going to be a follower, Jesus makes it clear there is no other way. I want to show you what he had to say about this matter of being a follower. You know, <laughs> Jesus would have been a public relations manager's nightmare. All right. I mean, every time he begins to attract a large following, he would up the ante. He would tell them how high the cost of following him would be, and the crowds would just vanish. This is too much. I can't handle this. Huh? And he, but he did this so that people would know the truth. He wanted them to know that it would not be cheap or easy to be his disciples. And by the way, we should all understand uh, this kind of thing, the way it's been treated over the years past in our contemporary church and so forth. uh, It is such a serious thing to make a profession of faith or to join a church. It is serious. Jesus here in this passage shares with us a pattern that uh, which has um, for us to follow uh, for his disciples to uh, to live their lives by. I want to remind you that not everyone who claims to be a Christian can truly be called a disciple of Jesus. Those who would be his disciples, his followers, have four requirements that they must meet in this life. And so, first, we see that Jesus says in verse 34, anyone who des- whoever desires to come after me... He's speaking about something which should issue from the heart, a desire. When he spoke these words, surely these 12 that were with him, had been with him, uh, understood uh, what he was talking about. They remembered when he first called them to follow him. 
Two and a half years ago, they'd left everything to follow Jesus. They had left family. They had left uh, friends and occupations. Everything else in their lives, they had left behind to go with Jesus. To the rest of the crowd that day, this was a call to the new birth. It was a call. It was an invitation to salvation. It was a call to make a personal commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It was a call for them to turn their backs on everything else to go after Jesus. In other words, folks, being born again, being getting saved or whatever you want to call it is far more than just praying a prayer at the altar. All right. A lot of people come to the altar. They pray a prayer and profess to know Jesus Christ. But my goodness, folks, true salvation is about a radical commitment to leave the old life behind, to follow Jesus into a new and very different life. It's about being a new creation. A new creation. Something which God creates. Only God can create. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17... All things have passed away. Behold, all things have been made new. We are a new creation in Christ. When we say yes to Jesus and we make that commitment, this is exactly what we're going to talk about. What does that mean? You know, you walk the Roman road, you take a journey through John, or go through any other method that people say, you know, bring salvation. But the fact is is that you only get saved when God convicts you of your sins And draws you to himself. It's a realization, folks, that the way I have been going is the wrong way. And it's leading me down a path that I don't want to go. The consequences to which, uh, of which are too great to bear. (coughs) But by making a reversal, a turnaround, and heading back to God, and following him and the things he speaks to me, it means a new life, a new creation. We receive the Holy Spirit of God. And because he has given us of his spirit, we are then able to understand the things which God says to us. We're able to understand, begin to understand that he indeed has a plan for us. Amen. Right. <coughs> when, he re- when he draws you and you respond by faith, salvation takes place. Salvation, though, is not some form of easy believism that just leaves you unchanged. Okay. True salvation happens when in your life, when it happens in your life, will make such a radical change in your life that you will begin to act differently. And you realize you're not the same person. Your desires, your habits change. Your interests, your commitments change. And when you come to Christ and are truly saved, you will want to follow him. You understand what I'm saying? (coughs) So many talk about, you know, well, I'm not quite ready yet. It's like, you know, they dread having to make this kind of a decision. Afraid of what they're going to have to give up. What a poor, ignorant understanding of what it is that God is offering them. If you're here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, I invite you to talk to some of those here in our congregation, some of the members of our church who have been leading their families down the road with Christ, 
who have been following him and have been um, allowing God to fulfill his plan in their lives and hear them speak of the joy that has been theirs since they made that decision. It's not like any they ever had before. Their hope is greater. Their desire burns hotter. And they it is just a totally new life. It's pure foolishness when you try to weigh what you think this new life is going to be like against what you hope this present life is offering you now, what you think you can get from it. It's pure foolishness. Where Jesus is, that's where your desire will be. When Jesus says, come after me, it's a call For the lost person to be saved. A call to salvation. Are you saved today? Are you totally, truly, radically following Jesus today? You may have heard that term before. Radically. But we're not talking about being radicals in terms of the uh, like the political uh, idiots sometimes that we see out of, out in the uh, in our culture, you know. Radical means something that is so different it bears no resemblance to what is considered normal. You're not going to understand a radical commitment to Jesus Christ until you've given your life to Christ. Then Jesus said, if you'll come after me, he must, thank you, thank you, Bob. <clears throat> you must deny yourself. Must deny himself. This is a phrase which literally means to completely disown. Alright? It means to separate oneself from, from something, from someone, from yourself. It's the same word that was used to describe Peter when uh, his denial of Jesus in the high priest's home. Denying self, though, is not the same thing as self-denial. Okay, some people will practice self-denial by, you know, by withholding certain things from themselves, like some of these uh, high church folks, you know, do during Lent. It's not giving up Starbucks for Lent, folks. That's not self, That's not denying self. That's not what Jesus is talking about. It's, it's far more intense than that, okay? It implies that I stop listening to my own voice. I stop listening to my own, leaning on my own power. I stop trying to fulfill my own will and wishes. When I truly deny myself, I have no will but His will. I have no plans but his plan. I have no wants, but what he wants for me. When I deny myself, I give up all my rights. I relinquish all control of my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which is an affirmation of this. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Make a note of that. You do not belong to yourself any longer. You belong to God. 
Folks, everyone on the face of this planet is God's property. All right, everyone, whether you profess to believe in him or not, makes no difference. You are God's property. If you're not a Christian, if you're not following Christ, then you have rebelled against God. You have you have turned away from him deliberately or otherwise. And the only way, the only hope that you have is allow God to reclaim you. Because he has already paid the price for your rebellion. This, this idea is, is totally foreign to people today. They can't begin to understand that. You know, most religions and most popular ministries are focused on uh, catering to yourself, right? I mean, they want people to feel good about themselves, right? Uh, they want people's uh, self-esteem to be built up, you know. you got to think good things about yourself, you know. And they want man, uh, everyone to rejoice in, in their achievements and in their abilities, you know. How is it that we come to the place where we think we should think so much of ourselves? <coughs> Jesus wants us to know that without him, <coughs> we are nothing. And we can do nothing. And so he's calling all of us who claim him as their savior to make a total commitment to his lordship in their lives. He wants absolute control over every area of our lives. And he calls upon you and I to disown ourselves and give him the reins of our lives. Now, that's not a side of Christianity that you hear about very often. It isn't people, it isn't popular to talk about sacrifice, about death and suffering, but that's what Christianity is about. Amen. There are no sidesteps, there are no shortcuts, but there is a high price to pay for being a genuine disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, if your desire is to follow Christ... He says, you must deny yourself. Then you must follow me. This true disciple of Christ turns his back on self and on the old life. That is what we are to be exemplifying by the lives that we live each and every day, folks. All And we're willing to lay down everything for the glory of God. Until we've come to this place, we cannot follow. To follow Jesus you must be able to hear him. But if you have never, if you have never denied yourself, if you have never taken up your cross, then there is no way that you can hear Jesus. Because what you're listening to is your own voice. What you're listening to is your own desires. You've never sacrificed those. You've never given those up. You've never died to yourself. All that old life is still living and growing and breathing in you. But once you make that decision to follow him and to deny yourself, then you're ready. Then you can hear Christ. 
the true disciple of Jesus takes his place behind the Lord. And he follows Jesus in obedience wherever he leads. The true disciple walks in, in total obedience and submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is calling us to be constant, faithful followers. You know, some people on Sunday, they take a different path. Uh, they they, they ha- act one way on Sunday and uh, differently on Monday. Uh, they follow the Lord when they need help, but they take another path when things get better. You see, that's not what the Lord is looking for. He's calling for his people to make a radical commitment to follow him all the time, all the way to the end of their lives. What I'm trying to teach you today, folks, is that there are no sidesteps. There are no shortcuts. There are no cheap seats in the pews, all right, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It costs something to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And only those that are willing to follow him all the way have the goods. Now, that's why Jesus said in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Can we honestly say that we are totally committed to Jesus when other things in life come before him? Can we honestly say that we are following him when we do as we please, when we please? Can we honestly say that you are, 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 are bearing your cross when you can, can't even be faithful to the church? Now, isn't it about time that we examine, that God's children examine our priorities, so that Jesus Christ and his will come first. It's a continual process. It's not a one-time thing. Every day is a day of evaluation. It's a day of going before the Lord and say, Father, forgive me for where I failed you. And Lord, lead me in the right way, the righteous path today. The price of discipleship is high, isn't it? Indeed it is. If you think you can pray a simple prayer and go to heaven while you still live your life as you please, you're just deceiving yourself. If you think that going to church and doing a few religious things are enough to secure your home in heaven, you're deceiving yourself. Genuine salvation is about a radical commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the key word there is Lord. Is he Lord over your life? When you come to him for salvation, you're giving up all of your rights. You're surrendering to his kingship. You're making a radical, eternal commitment to live as he sees fit. Genuine salvation is by faith through grace alone. But it produces drastic changes in the lives of all who receive it. Now I want to tell you, folks, you have a choice. It's your choice. Nobody else's. Nobody's going to make that choice for you. And when you stand before the Lord, you're going to have to, uh, well, he will know. You'll already know what choice you made, and so will he. In verses 35 through 37, Jesus says here, For whosoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whosoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? 
Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Look, folks. The way to save your life is to lose it. But preacher, that doesn't make sense. No. In the world sense, it doesn't. But it's perfect heavenly sense. Because... What Jesus is seeking to do here is teach us that that side of us, that person in us that needs to be redeemed, okay, uh, needs to have a kind of relationship that is going to take them into heaven. It's far more important than the things that we enjoy here upon this earth. So many people have the idea that what I do right now on this earth is important. I've got to leave my mark on this world, you know. And they do everything, they give everything they can in order to try and accomplish just that. But Jesus shows us here a paradox. It seems contradictory, but it's still true. He says that if you believe that having your own way, living life on your own terms and being your own Lord is more important than surrendering to his lordship, then you will lose your life. Simple as that. But if you will yield your life to him, giving up total control over all you have and all that you are to him, you will actually save it. You see, from a human perspective... It makes no sense. But from heaven's point of view, it makes perfect sense, folks. Oh, my goodness, folks. You have a choice. You can live your life as you see fit. You can refuse to come to Jesus Christ for salvation. You can call all the shots. You can be your own boss. You can do as you please, living your life as you desire on your own terms. But in the end, folks, you have made a bad bargain. Because you will lose. When you reach the end of your way, you're going to find out that there is nothing, nothing left. Nothing but an eternity in hell that's waiting for you. But on the other hand, you make the right choice. You can commit your life to Jesus Christ. You can deny your own will, give up all your rights, surrender his lordship and follow him faithfully. At the end of that way... You're going to find that you have invested in something that has eternal dividends. Eternal life with the Lord Jesus Christ. While those who live for this life alone lose everything in the end. Remember what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount when he was talking to folks about, you know, what all the things they pursued. He said, lay not up for yourselves treasures. On earth, where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where none of this happens, where everything is safe. Where there is no rust, where there are no moths, there are no thieves. This is where you build your future. This is where you, this is where you store up your treasures. Paul told the folks there in in Philippians, he said, you must uh, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, he wasn't saying save yourself, 
That's not what he was talking about. He was say, he was talking to the church. He was talking to the saints. And he said, you, it's work. You must continue to work. You must continue to separate yourself from the things of this world and continue to join your life and your heart to the things in heaven, to the eternal things. It's working out your own salvation. But God is our helper. What are you anticipating in the end? What do you think is going to happen? You hear in verse 36, Jesus asks a very powerful, powerful question. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What is your soul worth? Hmm. All right. If you gain the whole world, just imagine for a moment, okay, that you do. All right? Imagine that you possess the whole world and all the riches in it. Maybe kind of like Solomon or something of that nature, right? Even richer than that. Imagine that you possessed it all that. Imagine that you could do anything you wanted to do, be anything you wanted to be, or go anywhere you wanted to go. Sounds like a dream come true, doesn't it? Now imagine at the end of that experience of having, being, and doing as you please, that you die. What do you have? Nothing. Nothing. I like what I heard a preacher say one time. You don't see any U-Hauls behind a hearse, do you? No. You're not going to take it with you, folks. All right? So, you have nothing. Why? Because you failed to store up anything in heaven. What did you do for the kingdom of God? What did you do to demonstrate your faithfulness to Almighty God, to the Lord Jesus Christ. All you have left is in hell forever. With those few years, even decades or whatever it be of pleasure, would that be worth an eternity in hell? Jesus, you remember, told a story about a man like that. He was a man who lived life in the lap of luxury and, uh, and then he died and he went to hell. And when he arrived there, all the money, all the pleasure and all the power he enjoyed in his life were useless to him. He lost his soul. So he had lost everything. Let's be realistic, folks. All right. Most people in this room here will never, never know what it's like to possess riches, power, and the ability to do as you please. I think there are some folks that are really hoping and thinking that they hope hard enough, wish hard enough, and submit enough entry forms that the uh, uh, clearinghouse people are going to come knocking on their door with a check. Right? Wow. You know. But you've worked hard all your life. You've done without, endured hardship, suffered. But you've lived life on your own terms and then you die. And still, you go to hell. You see, what have you gained? Nothing. In fact, you've lost everything. And that's why you need to come to Jesus and you need to do it today, folks. Jesus asked another very powerful question in verse 37. What is the worth of your soul? Now, before you answer that question, I want to remind you that your soul is the only part of you that's going to live forever. Right? Your body will die, it'll be buried, but your soul will live on in either heaven, above, or in hell. So, what is your soul worth? 
Are you willing to trade your soul for some alcohol or drugs? Are you willing to trade your soul for some sexual relationship? Are you willing to trade your soul for the right to do as you please and to live life on your own terms? Are you willing to spend eternity in hell for a few years of being your own God? If you're lost, that's exactly what you're doing. And if you're doing that, you're lost. You've bought into the lie of the devil that you're going to lose all that you have. And you're going to lose all that you have and all that you are in a place called hell. Listen, folks, it's not too late. Okay? It's not too late to change the road that you're traveling on. Come to Jesus today and trade this world for a permanent, eternal relationship with him. Trade in for heaven for hell today. Uh, excuse me. Trade in hell for heaven. You get that. You know what I mean. <laughs> I got to tell you, there was a, um, about a thousand years ago, they opened up the tomb of, of Charlemagne. Or it was about 1000 AD, as a matter of fact. Uh, and... Um, he was the, you know, you may recall the king of the Franks. And, uh, he had been, he had died about a, almost 200 years before that. And when they opened the tomb, they found, uh, a, this great treasure in there, but they also encountered an amazing sight. They saw this skeleton of Charlemagne sitting on a throne with a crown still sitting on his head, on the skull. And in the bony hands of that skeleton was a copy of the Gospels. There was a bony, uh, a bony finger pointing to this text. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Charlemagne was a great king. He had great wealth. But in the end, none of that mattered. What mattered, what was in his heart. Uh, the story is told of a plantation slave in the Old South who was always happy and singing no matter what happened to him. Uh, his joy was just constant, always abounding. And one day his master asked him, he says, what have you got that makes you so happy? Well, the slave replied, he says, I love the Lord Jesus Christ. He's forgiven my sin and put a song in my heart. Well, how do I get what you have? This master asked him. He said, well... You go and put on your best Sunday suit and you come down here and you work in the mud with us and you can have it. <laughs> I would never do that, he says. And he wrote off indignantly, you know, in a huff and everything. Well, it was a few weeks later, he asked the same question and he was given the same answer. And again, a few weeks after that, he came a third time and said, now, look, be straight with me, please. What do I have to do to have what you have? And the slave said, just what I've told you the other times. Well, in desperation, the owner said, all right, I'll do it. The slave said, now you don't have to do it. You only had to be willing. We don't know what the Lord Jesus Christ is going to require of us. 
But he requires faithfulness. He requires obedience. And God has a plan for us. And for us to be a part, uh, for him to work out that plan in our lives, we have to listen to him. We have to be obedient to him. And he says that plan is not to harm you, but it's to profit you, to make you prosper. Oh, I think every one of us, uh, as the, the longer we live with the Lord Jesus Christ, the longer we follow in his steps, the more and more we understand what Jesus means when he talks about our prospering in the faith. There just is no substitute, folks, for the joy that is ours. There's no substitute for the sheer pleasure that we experience as we see God, as we experience him working through us to do things that we realize we could never have done on our own. There just is no substitute. The last thing I want to share with you very quickly, okay, is in verse 38. There he says, for whosoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, of him, the son of man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. Jesus is talk about, talking about here the cost of opting out. You hear that expression used a lot today, right? You opt in, opt out, and all that kind of thing. Yeah, it's an option, okay, for you. And you can opt in. You can live your life holy for Christ. Or as you see the cost growing, and you, you can opt out. If you are disobedient, you see what Jesus means here in this word. He used the word ashamed. It's, it means unwilling or unrestrained because of fear of shame or ridicule or depro, uh, d- disapproval. It's, it's referring to those who will not come to Christ for salvation and who will not follow him because they refuse to accept him or his message. When a person comes to Christ and begins to follow him, there is a price to pay. The believer rejects the world and its ways. Must be willing to be persecuted. Willing. Must be willing to be persecuted, reproached, even hated for the cause of Christ. Not everyone is willing to pay that kind of a price. And those who refuse to come to Christ will and live a separate, separated life, they prove that they want no part of Jesus or his message. These people will face a terrible judgment. Just as they refuse to acknowledge him, so also he will refuse to acknowledge them in, the, in heaven. True believers may suffer in this life, but true believers will enter into the joys of heaven when this life ends. But the lost person, on the other hand, might enjoy the best this world has to offer, but when the life is ended, they'll face God in judgment and spend eternity in hell. It's your choice. It's your choice. There are a lot of cheap seats, I guess you could say, in a Baptist church. You can attend here. You can occupy a pew. It won't cost you anything. Others, you know, they can do the work, pay the bills. Others are willing to bear the reproach of Christ before a lost world. But in the body of Christ, okay, in the body of Christ, there are no cheap seats. 
It costs something. True Christianity demands everything. Folks, I want you, if you don't hear anything else, just think about how your life is today and the kind of influence this culture is having on the way you think, is having on your worldview. How is your worldview influencing the way you live life each day? How is it influencing the decisions that you make? Are your decisions God-honoring? Will they bear witness to the, the righteousness of Christ and to the love of God? The decision is yours today. I encourage you today. If you have not come to Christ, if you do not have that personal relationship with him, you have an opportunity right now to do that. And when you come, know that this is a very serious decision that you're making. You're not coming just to pray a prayer at the altar. You're not coming just to uh, uh, pray a prayer of confession. You're coming to offer your life, your life to Christ. And so we're going to sing a hymn of invitation. And whatever your decision may be, if it's to more fully invest yourself in the kingdom, or whether it's to make that decision for an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, I invite you to come right now. Would you do that as we stand and sing?